Mark chapter 12 and verse 18 is where uh, we're kind of basing ourselves this morning. We're uh, just to put it into a context for you, um, just the bigger picture of what's been going on in this part of the Gospel of Mark is in chapter 11, um, Jesus, it's, it's the, 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 the day that Jesus went into Jerusalem and they put palm trees in front of him and they sang Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And um, in doing it, in a sense, and then what Jesus does, he, he goes immediately to the temple. And um, for us, this can sound so remote from our own lives. But actually what was going on was Jesus was coming into the capital city of uh, the country and going to the center of the capital city. And in a sense, very much was saying, this is my space. He's reclaiming his own space. And um, as would be the case today, if anybody did that today, then other people have, are already there. They've, 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 they're already in place. There are ruling authorities. There are people who have a vested interest in their position within the temple and within the capital city. And what goes on then is... So from the, the, the clearing out of the temple, where Jesus overturns those tables, all the way through to the end of the 12th chapter, is confrontations with people who are in positions of authority. And so we looked at, we've done two of those. We looked at the authority where the chief priest describes the elders. They're kind of like the ruling body said to Jesus, essentially, who do you think you are acting like this? And then we looked at the Pharisees and the Herodians, the people who were sort of supportive of Herod the Great, who was uh, the, 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 the king at the time of that area. And they talk about tax. And today, there's a sort of a confrontation about resurrection, which seems really a weird way of arguing with Jesus, if you're honest. He's coming to claim the temple, but they say, we'll take you on about uh, resurrection, but there's a reason behind it. But let's read then from verse 18. That gives you hopefully some idea of where this fits into the whole story. And by the way, when we get past this to chapter 13, he'll talk about the destruction of the temple. And then the next sort of phase we're in is the whole uh, events of the run up to the uh, crucifixion and then the resurrection. But anyway, verse 18. The Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. All right, just to get that in your head. All right. So this is the setup. In the Old Testament, in the earliest part of the Bible, Moses said at that time, if your brother die, if you're a bloke and your brother dies, um, it's your responsibility to marry your sister-in-law and bring and have children and bring them up. Okay, so that's the deal. And then the Sadducees say this: there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow. But he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. 
At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. And Jesus replied, You're not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. <laughs> Amen. I don't think I need to say anything this morning about that. I think that's all very clear. So what you've got going on here is the Sadducees are sort of like the third in line, and they come and they feel like they've given the sort of the master stroke down the line, all right? And Jesus isn't going to be able to answer this one. This is kind of like the winning sort of uh, strike against Jesus. And they come with this uh, issue of resurrection. I want to say two things this morning, really. One is, how do you deal with people when they're trying to trap you? Because that's what's going on here. How do you deal with people when they're trying to trap you? And secondly, what is going to happen to you once you're dead? All right, those are the two. So just two small things. What? <laughs> All right. I'm looking around. Some... No. Um... <laughs> How do you deal when people trap you? I read this. God doesn't need defending, but people sometimes need help understanding. And I think, in a sense, that's a really good way of looking at it. God doesn't need defending. Sometimes people, uh, when they know you're a Christian and they know you hold a position, then they come and they want to trap you. They want to trip you up. They want you to be in a place where you're going to feel embarrassed or you're going to feel out of your depth. You're going to feel sort of, I'm, I'm beyond knowing what to say here. Does anybody know how that feels? <laughs> All right, good. So this is relevant. And it's interesting because that's what was going on with the Sadducees. These, 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 these people, and you've got to understand... And it's, it's difficult just to know from reading, but if you know a little bit of background, it, it comes alive. These Sadducees were the aristocratic rulers. They were rich, they were powerful, they had authority, they were in charge. These were not people who were kind of like on the margins. These were at the heart of the establishment. These were the people with power. They come to Jesus and they ask. When you look at those first two questions, when people are asking you questions... The first two questions you've got to ask is, who's asking and why are they asking? If you don't pause to know who's asking you this question and to understand something of the why of they asking you the question, whatever the question may be, you'll make a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful mistake. Because some people ask questions not because they're interested, but because actually they're just trying to trap you. But other people come with questions, and the reason they ask you the question is because it actually matters deeply to them because of an experience they've had. A few years ago, someone asked me the question about hell. They wanted to ask a question about hell. And uh, it wasn't my greatest moment because I kind of started speaking before I was listening. Now, as a man, that hardly ever happens. <laughs> I'm sure most of you that are men would agree. But... I'd started answering a question because I, I knew the person who was asking me, and they weren't, it wasn't an antagonistic question, it was a genuine question, and I knew the person who was asking me the question. And I started talking about what I thought about hell. But actually, 
when I stopped speaking and then started listening, I realized the, person, the reason the person was asking me the question about hell was because her best friend at 15 had committed suicide. And what the question was really about was, what do I think has happened to her? Once I knew that, too late now, but once I knew that, it didn't change what I believed, but it changed how I might answer. Who's asking and why are they asking? And then secondly, how do you keep an eye on the bigger picture when, when you've been asked a question that's a small question? How do you keep your eye on the big picture? So this, is the, this was this sort of scenario, wasn't it? You've got the Sadducees, okay? So let's just go through the text. The Sadducees who say there's no resurrection come and ask Jesus a question. Now, the reason they said there was no resurrection because the Sadducees were religious people, religious Jewish people, and, and, and as I said, the aristocratic authorities. But they only believed that Genesis to uh, Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible, they were the only bits of the Bible you really should take seriously. And they said, doesn't explicitly talk about resurrection in those books, so we don't believe it. So they come and they ask a question about resurrection. So why are they asking? Well, they're not asking because they want to find out. They're asking because they want to know, where does Jesus sit? And then they tell this little story about a woman who is married, first husband dies, brother comes. It's, it's seven brides, it's seven brothers for one bride. Um, one brother dies, next brother steps in, he dies. Third brother steps in, he dies. Fourth brother is now beginning to wonder what's going to happen to him. But he steps in and he dies. <laughs> the fifth brother is going, I can see how this is going to end. But the fifth brother steps in and he dies. The sixth brother steps in and he dies. The seventh brother steps in and he dies. And then the woman, poor woman, goes, I'm out of here. And she dies. It is, I'm glad you're laughing because I think you're supposed to. It's kind of like a joke. It's like an extreme situation. And then the Sadducees go, so, who is she going to be married to in the day of resurrection? And Jesus, knowing where they're coming from, says, actually, folks, you're just asking me a stupid question that's trying to trip me up. Let me hold you with a bigger picture here. And I'll explain how he does the bigger picture in a minute. But he holds them to a bigger picture. And then lastly, he answers them in ways that they'll understand. So he says, interestingly, he doesn't argue about anything. He says, firstly, he said, you don't know the power of God, the God who can resurrect the dead. And secondly, let's go back to the bit of the Bible you do believe. And that's why he uses the text um, where, uh, in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, at the end of that text, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living, because he wouldn't call himself the God of Jacob, um, Isaac, and Abraham, if they were not still living. Now, for you and me, we might think, Jesus, that is not a strong argument. But actually, for them, it was like, I'll, I'll answer it on your grounds. 
So in other words, if, if people are trying to trip you up, how do you, how do you deal with it? Well, firstly, who's asking? Why are they asking? Secondly, how do you keep an eye on the bigger picture? And fourthly, how do you answer in ways that they'll understand? In other words, what are they resting their own belief systems on? There's no point you arguing on your belief system because actually you need to hear what do you think is true. I think it's kind of an intriguing way that Jesus deals with it here. But Jesus does actually begin to talk to them about resurrection. Let me pause for a minute. Does, does that bit make sense? Does it make sense? Is there any questions at that point? Okay. So then he, he goes on with this, this scenario that they've built up. And for us, you might go, well, it's, it is a ridiculous situation, isn't it? Except for some people, and it might be that you're in the room, it might actually not be that far off your own experience. You may well have been married twice or three times. And the people you were married to before may well have died. And you may actually be wondering, well, what happens then in eternity? What happens to things like marriage? And who am I married to? And, and what will it be like? We don't often talk about death, except at funerals. And that's kind of like the last place, I mean, it's not the last place we ought to talk about it, but it, it's kind of like, not the most helpful place to talk about death. Because those who are most affected are most upset and are least likely to be able to hear anything. I don't do many funerals because in our church people don't die. <laughs> we really don't do that many. It's really good. I don't know where you all go, but we don't, <laughs> we don't bury them. <laughs> But sometimes when, you, when I have done funerals for people who are not um, followers of Jesus, it can be really difficult because people have all this sort of folk idea, folk religious idea of life after death. And they talk about, you know, well, I'm sure dad's up there just watching down on us. Or they've gone to be angels Oh, they're like stars in the sky. And it all becomes very sort of almost superstitious. And very rational people end up with very weird ideas about, well, what happens? Now, it's true. It's the big mystery, isn't it? What's going to happen to you when you die? So as followers of Jesus, who are trying to make sense of this, who are trying to live within scriptural norms... We've, we've got to take passages like this seriously because they do try and help to make some sense of what's going to happen to you when you die. Jesus talking about this marriage question answers it with this. He says, when the dead rise, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now, first thing is, what he doesn't mean by that. What he doesn't mean is you're all going to be floating around on a cloud with wings on your back, all right, dressed in white and a harp. He's not meaning that. 
So you might want to peel back and go, well, what were these angels like? What are angels? Bible's not, doesn't spend a whole massive amount of time on them, except to say this, they're messengers from God. Sometimes they appear as humans, sometimes they don't, sometimes they come with messages from God. They clearly, you know, they're not on every page of the Bible, it's not very common, but at certain times in certain people's lives, they would go, I don't know, but I've just met someone who came just at the right time, and then they've kind of like disappeared again. It wouldn't be unusual if you were sitting there going, I think that's happened to me before. I think that's happened to me before. Not regularly, not every day. To be honest, if, it, if you're telling me you meet an angel every day, I'm going to help find you help, all right? But if from time to time you're going, actually, I think that's happened. Well, who knows? But you may well have met an angel. Uh, the book of Hebrews um, is one of those books, and it was written, a letter, really, written to Christians who were... Uh, they were growing tired of being Christians, if I'm honest. They were just kind of finding it a bit of a drag. They were finding uh, meeting with Christ- other Christians quite difficult. and a bit of, oh, They just found it really difficult. And they thought, let's go back to our old way of life. And the book of Hebrews uh, kind of tries to explore with people, why, why should you keep going as a Christian? What is it that's so great about being a Christian? And it does that. It tries to explain how brilliant Jesus is and why you should don't give up. Just keep persevering. But in the midst of that whole letter, there's one little piece that says, and don't forget to entertain strangers. Because by doing so, some people in the past have met angels and they didn't know it. And it's reflecting on the story in the Old Testament about Abraham, when Abraham has these strangers who come and he's he's hospitable and they come with a message from God that, they couldn't have imagined. It's kind of intriguing, isn't it? How might God be wanting to get our attention? So these angels are not sort of like floating around in the sky. That's the big, big thing. They're people who are, are they're, they're beings created by God, slightly higher than humanity, for God. They're at peace with God. They're at, at ease with God. And they serve him and they serve him well. So, but then he... The first part then, when the dead rise, Jesus says, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage. He seems to be suggesting that whatever the resurrection will mean, it won't be like it is today. You won't be married in the same way. Now for that woman who was married to seven of them, I guess that was good news. But for some others, it's like, sounds like bad news. Sounds like bad news. Because actually, some of you are really happily married. And you love being married. And the idea that you won't be married for eternity... Don't look at each other at this point. The the idea that you won't be married for eternity comes as a little bit of bad news. It's like, oh. And I wonder whether part of it is because in our culture, a big part of getting married is about love. You know, if I was to ask, you know, if we were to go around and ask you that are married, why did you marry that person? I don't suppose many of you would say, well, actually, we wanted to protect the inheritance of the family line. Or I don't suppose many of you said, well, actually, I was worried that when I get old, nobody would be there for me. 
So we, we decided we'd have children, and you know, the best way to get uh, the safest, most secure way of having children was in, within the marriage. So that's why we got married to have children that they might look after us when we get old. That's why we got married. None of you would answer like that because it's not our culture. In fact, if one of you did dare to say that you might find yourself divorced because it's like, <laughs> it's our culture. Our culture is, no, I married you because you were the one for me. I married you because you were the only one. I married you because you were so lovely. I married you because I loved you. I married you for any number of reasons. But property, inheritance, and a future of security doesn't come into it for most of us. But it did in a Middle East culture. Which is why that woman had to keep on getting married again. Because who's going to look after her? Because what will happen to the promise? What will happen to the covenant? In other words, how will God's promise keep on going down the line? That's why they kept on getting married. That's why if you had a brother and, his, uh, and, and, and he died, you had to marry the sister. Because you now become the protector if you're the bloke. So why do you not need that in resurrection life? Well, because you're not going to be on your own. You're not going to need, just follow that culture, not our culture. You're not going to need that cultural barrier because actually you're not going to be defenseless. You're not going to be at the prey of people who want to take advantage of you. You're not going to be left on your own because in the resurrection, it's not going to be like it is here. Now, I think there's something kind of interesting about this because in our, in our culture, go back to our culture, if you're not married, sometimes it can be quite difficult. I, I was reading some statistics, and, and, and of course, lots of people are not married. In our ward, in Claremont Ward, in this sort of area around the church, um, in 2011, 68% of people live on their own in this ward. 68% of people live on their own in this ward. That's kind of high, isn't it? I, I'd never have guessed that. I'd have never have guessed that. And sometimes in church, if you're in Christian circles, if you're not married, it can be really difficult. Because well-meaning people say to you, really praying you'll find someone. Or they'll say even worse, what you really need is someone, someone lovely. And you might not want to get married. And you go, clear off. Because the assumption is, that's the normal thing to do. And, and if you're not, then there must be, oh, this is a problem. It's kind of interesting that on the, the two things, Jesus upholds marriage, but he also relativizes marriage. He upholds it and says, you know, it's a great thing. The two become one. But actually, for eternity, it's not going to be like it is here. And I think as a church and as Christians, we've got something different to say about relationships. Because in our, in our culture, back to our culture, what's the big fear of being on your own? Nobody loves me. I'm on my own. There's nobody for me. At our best, and we're not always at our best, at our best, we can be a different community. So the resurrection, Jesus says, it's not going to be more 
It's just not going to be more of the same. And secondly, it's not just in the resurrection day. It's not just about having an insurance that everything will be okay in the future. It's going to be different. I keep talking about resurrection. The Bible outlines what's going to happen to you when you die. And it's kind of two stages. When you die, the Bible suggests that on death, you go and be with the Lord. So you think about the thief on the cross. And he says to Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. You'll be with me. Paul says in in his letters quite regularly, he says, I'd rather go and be with the Lord. But but, But I'll stay. And this idea of being with the Lord, being at peace in his presence, being with him. They use all sorts of metaphors. One of the metaphors is of sleep. And it's not the idea of sleep as being sort of completely unconscious, but the idea of sleep just being at rest. The idea that when you die, you go and be with him. But that's not for eternity. That's not forever. Because then there's a day of resurrection. And the day of resurrection is the day when bodies come back. When you get glorified, brilliant bodies that are kind of like you, but different from you. And if you want to know what, what will resurrection day be like, the best thing we can do is look at Jesus and his resurrection. He's the, the Bible talk, first fruit or prototype, if you want to use a sort of a contemporary word. Jesus is the prototype resurrection body for all who will be resurrected. That's what the Bible says. You want to know what you're going to be like? Look at Jesus. What can Jesus do in his resurrected body? Well, he's recognizable. Secondly, he can talk. Thirdly, he can eat. Fourthly, he can be touched. Fifthly, he can walk through walls. (laughs) He's not limited in the same way. He can make breakfast. He can do barbecues. He's brilliant, literally. There's a long chapter in the Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he's trying to explain this. And uh, I'm going to read from the message version, which is a kind of like a paraphrase of what Paul's doing. Eugene Peterson was an Ameri- is, is an American pastor, and he wrote the message version. He wrote it because he wanted to catch the attention of people. This is what I read. I've got to apologize. When I actually put it up this morning, I realized this is a sophisticated eye test. But... In the 15th chapter, believe me, if you're at the back and you can't see it, just believe me what I'm reading. Uh, In the 15th chapter, this is what he writes. Some skeptic is sure to ask, show me how resurrection works. Give me a diagram. Draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like? If you look at this question closely, you realize how absurd it is. There are no diagrams for this sort of thing. We do have a parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed... And soon there's a flourishing plant. There's no visual likeness between seed and plant. You can never guess what a tomato would look like by looking at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it don't look anything like. The dead body we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. You'll notice that the variety of bodies is stunning. 
Just as there are different kinds of seeds, there are different kinds of bodies. Humans, animals, birds, fish, each unprecedented in its form. You get a hint at the diversity of resurrection glory by looking at the diversity of bodies, not only on earth, but in the skies, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all these varieties of beauty and brightness. And we're only looking at pre-resurrection seeds. Who can imagine what the resurrection plants will be like? This image of planting a dead seed and raising a living plant, a life plant, is a mere sketch at best. But perhaps it'll help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body. But only if you keep in mind that when we're raised, we're raised for good, alive forever. The corpse that's planted is no beauty. But when it's raised, it's glorious. Put in the ground, weak, it comes up powerful. The seed sown is natural. The seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference from when it goes down in physical mortality to when it's raised up in spiritual immortality. I think that's brilliant. To try and explain the connection between who you are now and what you will become. You are now the seed. You look at the person next to you and you go, you're a seed. And Some of you are good looking seeds and some of you... (laughs) But when the resurrection body will be in continuity with it, but different. You'll be, in other words, I, I, we, we struggle now. You'll be like you, but gloriously transformed. You'll be like you, but gloriously transformed. And so Jesus says to the Sadducees, He says, you don't get it, do you? The God is the God of the covenant that goes on forever. His care and his love go on through death for eternity. You are loved forever. All of this is in a context where Jesus is asking people to come and follow him. And at the end of the day, what Jesus was doing there is what Jesus still does now. Jesus was doing there saying, you've got two different versions of the future. You have the Sadducee version, or you have my version. Which one do you want to follow? It's not that Jesus comes and nobody else has got an opinion. Everybody's got opinions, but Jesus comes and says, but actually, this is what I want to tell you. And the church, the early church, Paul, the apostle, the writer to the Hebrews, they come and they write about it because actually they wanted to take seriously what Jesus is saying and saying, this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we have. So here's my question. What difference does it make? What difference does it make? I'm going to ask you just for a moment or two to um, either turn to someone or turn behind you and um, say to the person, you go first. What difference, <laughs> what difference does all of this make? What's the, what's the good news? What difference does it make? If this is true, what difference does it make to you this week? What difference does it make to you 
this week. So what difference does this resurrection of the dead doctrine, which actually stands at the heart of the faith because of the resurrection of Jesus, but also because of our own hope, what difference does it make to the way, what difference could it make to the way we live this week? Um, we are talking about how it takes away fear. So that, that fear of dying is like a big fear that loads of people have. So actually, if you know what it's going to be like, it takes away that fear and we can live with that bigger picture. Yeah. Um, we also had a question about Adam and Eve. Excellent. <laughs> Take the microphone off her now, Cam. <laughs> what was your question? So we, we were talking about how obviously the ideal at the end is no marriage, but actually God's ideal at the beginning, he still created Adam and Eve to be together. So we were having a big discussion about was that actually marriage or was that just the idea of people being in community and was that the picture? And then Judy was talking about whether it was the bride and the groom as the church and all that kind of thing. So if you'd I like think to it's comment. A great, I think it's a great discussion to have with your mother-in-law. <laughs> And um, <laughs> well, welcome to church. I'm glad that I was able to set that up for you today. What else? What else? What difference does it make? Well, we were talking about it, and uh, what we found, it's the good news is we're going to heaven instead of hell, which is yeah. great. However, not knowing if you will recognize your loved one. Or not, it was quite uh, a question okay. we asked ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, yeah, okay, so I, I, this is where I, I, I think I read out of scripture. I think you will recognize, I just don't think it'll be exactly the same sort of relationship that you have at the moment. So I think, you, mm-hmm. I think you'll be okay, you'll be able to find Diane. <laughs> it just Energy, won't be the same, same form of relationship. Anybody else? What, 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 did you, what were you talking about? I probably wasn't talking exactly about what you wanted me to talk about. Okay, again, Cam, Cam, same, same applies. Take the microphone off the lady. <laughs> no, I was relating to Val about my grandfather, my step-grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was killed in the First World War as a very young man, and so my grandmother married again. She was only 20. And when um, my step-grandfather died... His wife, my grandmother, had already died, but he asked exactly the same question of his daughters. Mm. Will Ada know me, or will she want to be with George? And it was, mm. Um, mm. you know... A, yeah, a real question for them. A sad um, yeah. thing that that was what he was worried about. But when he died, he had a glow of happiness on yeah. his face. So... Yeah. Okay, thank you. One can only think that he was happy. Anybody else? What difference does it make? David, (laughs) over there. Yeah, we were talking about it gives you a sense of purpose um, in terms of how you live out your life uh, in a Christian aspect that uh, gives you that sense of obviously hope but there's that sense of purpose and uh, people are continually looking for purpose in their life through materialism and other things. Um, but having that, that sense of knowledge that there is something after this life yeah. is important. How it happens, I don't think is that important, uh, really. I think in the message, it's more that it will happen. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Elaine. Yeah. They do this on purpose. 
Well, where it says, um, where Paul says in the Bible that things will cease, like tongues will cease and other mm. things will cease, but love will go through, um, then what I've sort of read and think gives a lot of purpose to life is that everything that we do in love will go through. Everything else will be burned up. But, you know, just the simple things we do for people or um, just arts, music, anything that's done in love will go through. So that, you know, makes an enormous difference rather than just thinking, you know, oh, the earth's going to be burned up, everything's yeah. going to go, and it's all going to be started again. No, it's, it, the Bible seems to indicate that things we do now will actually matter and go right through yeah. forever. There is an interesting, at the end of the Bible, the end of sort of like the last two chapters of the Bible, is, is the picture of heaven coming to earth. So we always talk about when you die, you go to heaven. But actually, the, the, the ultimate picture is that heaven comes to earth and that everything's transformed. And within it, they, they, and they use the picture of the temple, interestingly, this place where God is, and God comes. And now, and, and you know this, those of you who read the, the end of the story, um, there's no light because God is the light, this brilliant light. That there's no fear, there's no sadness, there's no tears, there's no regret. And that picture of heaven coming to earth where, and, and to your point now, the kings of the earth will bring the glories of the nations in. They'll bring the best of what we've got in. And I love that idea of our goal, the goal of the story of God, is that the world that he created, the world that he has always loved, will be perfectly transformed by his presence and glory. And we will be with him. The other reality of that and all of this is, so who won't be there? And that's the more disturbing side of it. And Revelation paints a picture of those who actively work against God's good design won't be there. Those who ultimately turn their back on the creator won't be there. So one of the things that Christians have always been fueled by is the reality of an urgency of this life is actually quite short. So don't muck about in it. And for the people of God who carry a good news message, don't keep it to yourself. The grace of God is wide, the mercy of God is great, but the reality is that there's, for those who resolutely refuse the creator who made them, who loves them, who died for them, people like C.S. Lewis and all the way through, have grappled with that question, well, what will be? Well, I don't know, except this, that I want to live telling them the good news of the entry. Sometimes the church has really let themselves down on this. Because we've stood outside with banners proclaiming who's not going to be there. Actually, with the carriers of good news to say, look, there's more than you could ever imagine. There's more than you could imagine. 
that what, what we're dealing with here and now is not forever. There's better news. There's bigger news. There's eternal news. And it's not to frighten people into the kingdom, but it's to say, look, this is what we believe to be true. Not just some sort of airy-fairy, God loves us and therefore you know, accept it, but it's much more than that. That the resurrection of Jesus made a difference for all. So come, be part of this party. Come in. Don't stand outside. Be, be part of what God's wanting to do. Include yourself in. The twin reality of hope and the future is where God does make things right. And that includes judgment. But then, ultimately, that does make things right. And so we come and we carry this message and we're wanting to know how do we, who do we speak to and why are they asking these sorts of questions? And then how do we give them a big picture? And how do we speak in ways that they can understand? How do you come in? I think the final thing I'd want to say then is this week, I think all of the things you've said are brilliant. I think it does give us hope. I think it gives us purpose. I think it gives us meaning. I think it gives us a sense of, of hope for those who've gone before us. I think it gives us this sort of brilliant sense of a celebration that someone called it the festival of friends. When God, you know, when we're with him and with him for eternity. But it also is an urgency that says, so don't keep it to yourself. If you really think this is good news, then go and tell as many as you can. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Let's pray together. Maybe Hannah and the band would come back and... I'm going to ask those who are going to serve communion to come to the front and just prepare to serve us all. This act of communion, this act of engagement is one where we say... God, we stand in need of forgiveness. We stand in need of newness, of new life. And that confession is never a tragedy. Because through the death of Jesus, he has made it possible to be at peace with God. So the first thing to say is that when we come this morning and we take communion, we queue up together saying we still mess it up and we only get this peace with God and we only come into this brilliant story through grace not of our something we've earned but only through grace and we take the bread and it's broken and it's the body of Jesus broken for you and the cup the cup of the Lord, the cup of the agreement between God and us that says, this is the agreement I make. In my blood, you are made clean. But then you come to the front and you receive that for yourself and I receive it for myself. And I take great delight in that. 
it's not just a religious act it's something that actually sort of gears our life for the rest of the week and then we walk out back to our seats we walk back towards and in a few minutes or so we will go we'll leave and you will carry the life of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the grace of God with you the good news that says to people it's not always going to be like it is today the good news that says you don't need to feel hopeless for eternity the grace that says God has done something to change the future come join the party so as you come and receive communion this morning you receive it for yourself but you walk out for the sake of others may you know the grace of God for yourself and for those who are around you I'm asking you name Ready?